0: Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me. You've heard those words. If you've grown up going to church, uh, maybe if you have even sung them to your own kids. It's a song that originally was uh, written in 1860, and it appeared in a novel. And in the novel, it was a poem to a child who was dying to comfort that child that Jesus love them. And then later it was turned into a song in 1862, and we're still singing it today about the love of Jesus Christ. And my concern when we talk about the love of Jesus is that it's become a kid's song. It's become a cliche. If I say, hey, we're going to talk this whole sermon, this whole time this morning, we're going to talk about nothing but the fact that Jesus loves you. My concern is that some people in the room might act like, oh, I already know about this. I've already heard about this as if like the love of Jesus could somehow be something that we as Christians would take for granted or get used to or just become familiar with, as if it almost isn't that big a deal or it's kind of old news and it becomes a cliche. Turn with me to John chapter 13 verse one and we're gonna look at this verse and hopefully it's gonna stir up in our hearts a reminder of what it means for you and me to say as adults at church here this morning, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And for that to mean something to us, not something that we would know in our heads, but feel in our hearts, something that would describe a real experience of a relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. And you are convinced here this morning that he loves you. John chapter 13, page 900, if you got one of our books. We're kicking off a brand new series. It's gonna take us all year to go through John 13 to 17. And we're just going to get into one verse this morning. Verse 1 of John 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So if the Bible tells us that Jesus loves us, You can know from this day forward, if you didn't already, John 13, 1 would be one of the prime places where you could say, here's where it's telling me that he loves me. He loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. So we're starting something that's very exciting to me. I hope you get excited about it too. We're going to study the Last Supper of Jesus Christ. This dinner that he had with his disciples, his 12 disciples, on the night before he died. And it goes from the supper to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays. Then he's betrayed by Judas. Then he's taken to trial after he's arrested. And then he's taken over to this trial and that trial. And then eventually he's taken out and executed on the cross. And it all starts right here in John chapter 13. This is the introduction. And John, the first thing he says as he sets the stage here, and he gives us one verse is all we're going to get into, and it's got four different phrases here in this verse. And these four different phrases are going to go with our four different points. If you've got a handout and you want to take notes, we've got four different lines we're going to fill in with the four different phrases. And here's the first one. Now, before the feast of the Passover. Before the feast of the Passover. So the Passover feast, or the feast of unleavened bread... Is one of the feasts that they would have celebrated in Jerusalem, and all of Israel would have gathered together to celebrate this. And the feast of the Passover is a remembrance of what happens in the book of Exodus. If you go back to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they are slaves in Egypt, and God's going to deliver them out of Egypt, and the way that he delivers them is he's going to kill the firstborn of all the Egyptians. In fact, he's going to kill the firstborn of everybody except for those who sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and they spread the blood of the lamb over the door of their house. And the angel of the Lord that's going to come through and kill all the firstborn, well, if we've spread the pure blood of the lamb over the door, then the angel of the Lord will pass over that house. And so they celebrated that first Passover and closed like they were ready to travel and they had this special meal and this became an ancient Jewish tradition that is still being practiced today. This Passover feast to remember God's deliverance of his people from Egypt and Jesus and his disciples, they're gonna have this feast together. And every single gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them describe this last supper that Jesus has with his disciples. Let me give you some cross-references you can write down. In Matthew, it's chapter 26, starting in verse 17, okay? And Jesus sends out two disciples. We find out it's Peter and John. And they go and they say to this guy, hey, the master needs a room. And there's this upper room that this guy has ready for them to meet in and to have this meal. And in the Gospel of Mark, it's chapter 14, verse 12. And the Gospel of Mark says that they're doing this on the day that they slaughter the lambs to prepare for the Passover. And so we think this happened on Thursday night. And then Luke 22, starting in verse 7. So in all of these synoptic gospels, we call them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three different accounts of the same story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They all tell us that on the night before Jesus died, there was a dinner with him and the 12 disciples, and they had a time of, the first time of communion there, and then afterwards, Judas left during the dinner, and then afterwards, the rest of them went to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all tell us the story, but here in John, he tells us much more than the others. I mean, it's not just a few verses in one chapter. I mean, if you're in John 13, we're going to study all of chapter 13, all of 14, 15. If you got one of our books, turn the page and you'll see 16 and 17. These four pages in in our Bible here, um, these five chapters, that is all this dinner, okay? You ever heard that question, uh, like in an icebreaker or in an interview, hey, if you could have dinner with anyone, dead or alive, who would you want to eat dinner with? Now, if you've ever heard that question and you listen to what people say, even people who aren't Christians, they sometimes throw out the answer, well, Jesus is one of the most interesting people that ever lived. I'd love to have dinner with with Jesus. Well, John is going to take us to the ultimate dinner with Jesus. John is going to take us to the last dinner. Maybe, maybe you're familiar with The Last Supper, the painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Maybe you've seen that, that scene there. I mean, it does not get more epic than the, to be with Jesus on his last night on planet earth. And John is saying, I want to take you in, like to give you a firsthand account of what it was like for me to have the, the dinner with Jesus. And I can still tell you what so-and-so said and then how Jesus responded and then how Judas left. I could tell you every detail because I will never forget this night that I shared in the Last Supper with Jesus Christ. Now, John is the one, if you're looking at the painting, John is the one right to the left of Jesus Christ. And John, he sets it up with the the feast of the Passover, and really what I think he's doing is he's inviting the reader to come and share a meal with Jesus. So let's get that down for the setting. If you're taking notes, the setting that we're going to be talking about all year is come and share a meal with Jesus, okay? Okay. Now, last year, we started going through the Gospel of John. We got through 12 chapters, 35 sermons, and our theme was come and see. Anybody remember how we were talking about that? Come and see Jesus. We said, let's go tell everybody. Everybody you know, they need to come and see who Jesus is. They need to see the signs, the miracles, hear the teachings, and then they can decide as they see Jesus, as they read the Gospel of John, as they hear the sermons, they can decide after they see him if they want to believe in Jesus or not. So the goal of seeing Jesus was to get people to believe in Jesus. That was the whole theme last year. Endless sermons about here's who Jesus is. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. Well, now this is a little different. We're not just saying there's an offer on the table for you to believe in Jesus. We're saying come and sit down at the table and let's fellowship with Jesus. This is just him and his 12 disciples. This is him now not talking to the crowds, not arguing with the religious leaders. This is Jesus And his innermost circle. And he's going to tell them, hey, I'm leaving. And here's how I want you to live on planet earth while I'm gone. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. You better love one another. And if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And the world is going to hate you. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's what he's going to tell them. And then he's going to pray the most epic prayer that you could ever read in John chapter 17. A prayer where Jesus prays not only for his disciples that were at this dinner, but where Jesus prays for you. And John's saying, come and see this. Let me tell you about this time I had at the feast of the Passover. In fact, look at chapter 13. Look at verse 23. Look at how John describes it once we get into it. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So this is John now referring to himself, and he doesn't even mention his own name. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he says, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And and Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, this is John now referring to himself. That disciple who's leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus says something startling there with the 12 disciples. One of you is going to betray me. And they're like, what is he talking about? And Peter gives John the head nod across the table, like, hey, you ask him because you're sitting right next to him because you're literally leaning back. That's, they, they ate in a reclined manner where they were kind of laying around the table. And he's literally leaning up against Jesus Christ. Oh, one of us is going to betray you? Oh, who is it? So you cannot get a closer encounter with Jesus, when he was a man on planet earth, then what John is going to describe for us that we're gonna study every single detail of this dinner that John has with Jesus Christ. And the first thing he wants you to know, the way he thinks about himself as he relays the events of the dinner, he says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. First thing I want you to know when I tell you about the dinner and then how he was betrayed and then the arrest and then the crucifixion and then the resurrection, as I tell you the whole story, I just want you to know it was all love. That's what he says. In fact, he cannot even refer to himself. He cannot even think of himself without talking about himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Go to John chapter 19. And here he is now at the foot of the cross. Everybody, just turn a few pages over with me to John 19 after the dinner When we get to Jesus now dying on the cross, John is there. He's a front row eyewitness. There's Jesus dying, John standing right down below the cross. And in John 19, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother. So there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, watching her son die on the cross. And who's next to Mary? The disciple whom he loved. That's John referring to himself. And they're standing nearby when he's dying on the cross. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So how close was this guy, John, with Jesus? How much should we listen to what he has to say about Jesus Christ when he died? Well, he's the guy standing at the foot of the cross right next to the mother of Jesus. And Jesus looks at his mom and he looks at John and he says, hey, mom, here's your son. Hey, here's your mom. Like basically, I'm dying up here on the cross. You, John, are now going to take care of my mom. That's how tight these guys were. They weren't afraid of a little physical contact when John's laying back on Jesus because these guys, they love each other. John cannot think of himself without saying to himself, Jesus loves me. I'm one of those that are loved by Jesus. Go to chapter 20. Chapter 20, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Mary Magdalene goes down to the tomb, and it's empty, and she comes back. Look at verse 2. She ran, and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Who is this mysterious other disciple? Oh, he's the one whom Jesus loved. We know who that is. It's John. And she said to them, to Peter and John, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. I saw the tomb, and he's not there. The tomb is empty. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple, this is John now talking about himself, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That is how you do a humble brag right there, everybody. A little bit faster than Peter, apparently, and uh, since it's spirit-inspired, it must be true, right? And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, following him, because he was in second place, following him, went into the tomb. How typical Simon Peter. John's like, whoa, it's empty. Peter's like, walks right in, right? Typical Simon Peter there. And he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, humble brag, also went in and he saw. And look at this. Here's John seeing that Jesus is not in the tomb and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Like that's the moment he finally gets it when he sees the empty tomb. He finally gets that Jesus has been saying this whole time he's going to rise from the dead. The disciple whom Jesus loved. In chapter 21, there's a fascinating conversation between Peter and Jesus. And at the end of that conversation, Peter, look at verse 20. This is John 21, verse 20. Peter is over here talking to Jesus and he turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Okay, has, is he making a point to anybody yet? Like if he's going to talk about himself, there's one significant thing that the apostle John wants you to know about himself and that is that he is loved by Jesus. If he knows he's loved by Jesus, that defines his life. That's, that's his identity. And so Peter says, hey, what's going to happen to this guy? Hey, Jesus, you're over here correcting me because I denied you three times. Well, what's going to happen to this guy? John, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You, Peter, you follow me. So the saying spread abroad, it went among the brothers, among the Christians, that this disciple, John, was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. I'm an eyewitness, John saying. I was leaning against him at the Last Supper. I was standing at the foot of the cross. I saw the empty tomb. And I'm writing now much later after the other disciples have died. And I'm telling you the true story of a night I will never forget when I shared a meal with Jesus Christ, his last meal on planet Earth. And John, he's going to tell us the whole thing. But the first thing that he wants us to know is I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. And if you're one of Jesus' disciples, Jesus loves you, everything. It was all love. That night that seemed to go so wrong where all of a sudden there was betrayal and arrest and trial and crucifixion and what happened to Jesus. And then he rises from the dead. All of that, John says at the beginning, it was love. And let me tell you, I was leaning against him. I thought it was just another Passover meal. And it was a night I will never forget, and I want to tell you about it. Go back to chapter 13, verse 1. So that's the setting. We're going to be studying that. Hopefully that will encourage you to come back. Hopefully that will encourage you to invite your family members, your friends, your neighbors to come and have a firsthand encounter through the eyes of John at this dinner with Jesus. But then he says this, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So that's our our second phrase there. One thing that John wants us to know is as we begin this dinner, which is going to be this crazy night that's going to turn into the day that Jesus dies, here's what Jesus knew as it all got started. He knew that his time had come, and he was going to leave the world, and he was going to go back to the Father. His time had come. Now, Jesus has a very interesting relationship with time that you and I really need to think about a little bit, okay? Our life has been defined by time. In fact, when we talk about your life, we ask you, What is the day that you were born? And we know that you're alive because of your, your birthday. Like ever since we've been born, we've lived inside the wallpaper of space and time. That's all we ever know. This life, this space that we can see, that we can feel, that we can touch, the time that keeps on moving forward. That's how we think about life. Jesus has existed. For all of eternity, outside of time. Okay, now we only know time, and we're hoping someday to get outside of it into eternity. Well, Jesus, He comes from a radically different place than we do. Jesus existed for all of eternity past, outside of space and time. And in fact, Jesus is the one who created space and time. So when Jesus has a time, that's very rare. That's that's different. When the Bible's talking about there's this hour, there's this time. Well, no, Jesus exists in eternity. He's a spiritual being. He exists in perfect relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We refer to it as the Trinity, this mind-blowing reality that God is three persons, and yet he's one God. And the Bible describes clearly that they enjoyed perfect fellowship for all of eternity past, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's where Jesus is coming from. And when Jesus comes into space and time, when, he, when the creator becomes creation, when God becomes man, see, we call that the incarnation. Maybe you've heard about reincarnation, that you're going to come back, and you better be good, because otherwise you'll come back as like a frog or something. So you better be good, because then you'll come back as like a stallion. I don't know exactly how it works, right? But there's no idea of reincarnation, but there is this idea of Incarnation where one who existed before time entered into time, and he had a very specific, he had an hour, he had a time, there was a reason that he entered into time. Now go back to chapter 2 here in the Gospel of John, and let's just track how Jesus has been referring to his time or his hour throughout the whole Gospel. Maybe you remember the first miracle that Jesus did at the wedding at Cana, where he turned water into wine. And who was the one that encouraged him to do this miracle? It was his mother, Mary. And after she said, hey, they've got a problem, you should do something about it, Jesus says, look at John chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Hey, you're trying to get me to do a miracle. You're trying to get me to show off that I'm supernatural, that I'm from eternity past, that I don't belong here in time, like, like human beings, that I'm God in flesh. Well, my, that's not my time for me to reveal that. It's not time for me to show that. Now he ends up doing the miracle. He ends up going along with his mom, but he's clear to her that his hour had not yet come. Go over to chapter 7, and you'll see that he says the same thing to his brothers. His brothers did not believe in him. They were giving him a hard time. They were maybe a little bit jealous of Jesus. I don't know what their motive was, but they didn't believe him. If you're God, if you're so awesome, if you're so great, why don't you just go into Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths here in chapter 7, during one of these times that all Israel is gathered in the city of Jerusalem, and why don't you just show everybody who you are if you're all that? This is his brothers giving him a hard time. And he says, the reason I'm not going to go with you and make a big scene down there in Jerusalem and, and reveal myself publicly like that is, look at what he says in John chapter 7, verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. No, it's not, it's not the time yet. But your time, as in your time to believe in me, your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Hey, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So even when Jesus entered into time, he still had a time, an hour that he was going for, that he was waiting for. And he says here to his brothers, I'm not going to go out in public and let everybody see who I am so they can make me king or, or do something political victory. I'm not, no, that's not, that's not my time yet to do that. And so he ended up going to the feast in a private way, not like his brothers wanted him to. But the tone changes in verse twelve. Every, I mean, chapter 12. Everybody look at chapter 12, verse 23. Because after the teachings and uh, the arguments with the religious leaders and after some of the miracles, especially the raising of Lazarus, finally, there's a turn in the tone of Jesus here in John 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the time, he says. And so moving in, as we transition now into the last night of Jesus' life, John makes it very clear. I want you to know that the time is here. What time are we talking about? Ultimately the hour, ultimately the time is his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, the gospel, the good news. That's ultimately what Jesus entered time for. But why? Let's just think about this for a minute if you, this is not the way I would have written the script. Think about how you would have written it. If you are God and you create the world, right? You create human beings. Why would you then become one of them? If you are outside of space and time, you have perfect fellowship, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in glorious splendor, just pure holiness, Never a problem, never a worry, just a 100% perfect, joyful environment that you're experiencing among the Godhead. Why does the creator become one of the creation? Have you really considered this? I mean, have you really thought about what it's like to exist in eternity Have you started to realize that the life that we know, the physical life, everything that we've seen and heard and felt here is not real life, but there is a spiritual life that exists outside of space and time that is actually what matters? Have you started to think about that? See, I I think of space and time as wallpaper. And when I say wallpaper, I'm not talking about the uh, background of your computer screen or on your mobile device. I'm talking about old-fashioned, like we roll it on the walls, it's in the bathroom, it looks terrible wallpaper. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like a repeated pattern over and over, right? Like this pink flower that you're seeing endlessly there in the bathroom, and you're there for a minute, so you're kind of looking at it, you know, at grandma's house, right? And I don't know if anybody else was like me, but you kind of got tired of this repeated pattern and you felt like if you could just kind of pick at the paper a little bit, you wanted to peel what was behind the wallpaper, right? That's what you have to start thinking about. Let's get outside of what we see and experience and let's start thinking by faith about eternity outside of space and time. Where Jesus existed in perfect splendor with the Father and the Son. What compelled Jesus Christ to enter time? Why would the creator humble himself to become one of his creation? Not the way I would write the script. Go back to John chapter 1. Go all the way back to the beginning of the book. And it gave us a glimpse of Jesus before he entered the world. It says, in the beginning was the word. This is John chapter 1 verse 1. This word is the expression of God to man. It's Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So there he is enjoying his relationship with the Father, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Have you thought about that much? Outside of time, before anything else, there was the Father, there was the Son, there was the Holy Spirit, a perfect, all-sufficient relationship that they had there. And then they said, let there be light, and they decided to create time and space, and they created the world as we know it. I mean, can you imagine how awesome that must have been? I mean, it goes on to to say that right here in verse 3, all things were made through him. So Jesus, everything that's been made was made through Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus himself was actually the agent of creation, okay? I mean, can you imagine the father saying, let there be light that Jesus is? They're doing it together, and they're just marveling back, and they're just saying, look at how awesome this creation is. Look at how good it is. We're making light. We're turning it into a sun and, and a moon and a day and a night. And then we're separating the land and, and from the water and the skies from the land. And we're, we're starting to put animals in the skies and crawling things on the land. And we got all these things swimming down in the sea. And we're making some kind of sea creature. And we're like, hey, check that out. Look how awesome that is, Dad, you know? I mean, look at that one. Can you imagine the joy of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as they create the world together? Why would Jesus leave that? I had the privilege of being on a vacation the last couple of weeks, and I went to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, in my humble opinion, the best aquarium on planet Earth. Anybody ever been to that aquarium before? And, And there was a line of people waiting to take a picture of jellyfish. Have you ever experienced this phenomenon? They got these jellyfish there that are just amazing. They're like translucent. It's like you can see straight through them, but they have these racing stripes, they have these like neon colors. That go up and down them, like every neon sign you've ever seen, or like the lights that would flash in some kind of nightclub, like they're inspired by these jellyfish because they've just got these neon lights just rotating around them in this endless display of glory. And there's people like elbowing each other to get pictures of jellyfish. And I'm just thinking, worship the Lord, look at this. This is what God made, this is His creation. And here Jesus is with the Father, creating the world in perfect relationship. And then what happens? The man and the woman that we create, they get deceived by the deceiver, and they they sin. And that ruins the relationship that God has with the man he created in fact, it takes such a nosedive, it's such a train wreck, it gets so bad, and God is so angry at the sin of men that He wants to flood His creation with water, and He makes the rainbow as a symbol of His second chance that He's going to give planet Earth through this guy Noah. And when He gives planet Earth a second chance, He says, "I'm going to work through Abraham, and I'm going to have a people, and I'm going to have a nation of Israel, and I'm going to deliver them, and I'm going to be their God, and they're going to be my people." And the nation of Israel, what do they do throughout history? They turn away from God and sin and. sin and sin and leave him behind. And what does he do? He keep on loving them over and over. And so, man, you created this beautiful world that was good. Men turn into sin and they keep on sinning against you. And then you decide that you're going to become a man to save them. Is that how you would have written the story? I mean, why does Jesus, who spoke us into existence, humble himself to become one of us look at what it says here in John chapter 1 verse 14 I mean famous words and the word this expression of God to man Jesus Christ he became flesh the spiritual put on physical and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory John's saying I'm an eyewitness to it I was leaning up against it I saw it at the cross I saw it at the empty tomb it's the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, if we're going to know the love of Jesus, we need to see where it started. It started when he, in eternity, entered time. So, this I know number one Jesus loved me to leave eternity for time. This is the first place that I can see the love of Jesus Christ to go and save his creation on a seek and save mission. He enters time. He has an hour. And the whole purpose that he comes is to save us because we have gone astray. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Everybody grab your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 2 because you need to know about what it's like when Jesus goes from creator to creation, when God becomes man. Now, we call that the incarnation. That's kind of our theological word there in parentheses. And Philippians 2, 6 to 8 Is one of the classic passages that define the incarnation, and it's talking about Jesus. And it says in Philippians 2, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, here he is with the Father, with the Spirit, and pure glory, just being worshiped for being holy. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. No, he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, a slave, and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. What an interesting phrase. Being found in human form is all we've ever known. That's the norm for us. No, here's God putting on flesh. Flesh. And when it says it here in verse 7, it says that he emptied himself. Do you see that? He made himself nothing. If you want to write down under point number one, kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S. Kenosis is the idea here in the original language. It's the idea of he's, he's God. He deserves our worship. He is the center of the universe. He upholds the universe, and yet he just acts like he is nothing. He empties himself, and he becomes one of us. And the Creator is born into the creation. And it says that um, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even. Death on a cross. That was the hour. That was the time. This was the whole mission. I'm going to enter time out of love on a seek and save mission. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And then I'm going to go back into eternity to be with the Father. And so Jesus knew his time had come. Now go back to John chapter 13 and let's look at our next phrase here. Okay, we're at this feast. We're at this dinner. But before we even get into the dinner, I got to let you know it was the time. Jesus knew it was the hour. He was going to accomplish his mission to die and rise again. He was going to go back into eternity to be with the Father. But here's what Jesus did. Having loved his own who were in the world. That's our next phrase. So when he knows his time has come, here's what he's doing. He's loving his own who were in the world the world. Now John is going to make a distinction here that starts here and it goes throughout these next chapters between the world and Jesus' own. So we're now going to start talking about two different groups of people. The people of Jesus are going to be in the world, but not of the world. And so there's going to be the world and then there's going to be his own. And we see, let me ask you this question. Does Jesus love the world? You guys tell me. Yeah, I mean, we, that was one of the verses that is maybe the most famous of all, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. So we, we can say that Jesus loves the world. His love is offered to all of his creation, to all human beings. In fact, you could write down, if you want to, 1 John 2, 2, which makes it very clear that Jesus died not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And so that's what we've been talking about all last year from the first part of the Gospel of John as we've been saying that there is an offer of love on the table to every single individual that is alive on planet Earth right now that Jesus loves you by dying for your sin and rising again. That offer is extended. It is available to all people. But see, now we're starting to talk about his own people. The people who don't just know about the offer on the table, they've believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They've received his love. They're now sitting at the table with Jesus, enjoying a relationship of love with Jesus Christ. So now we're talking about the people who are the believers and we're going to make it, see, the world has it offered to them. The believers, they experience the love of Jesus. They know the love of Jesus, not just they know about the love of Jesus. They are loved by Jesus right now. And it's a relationship that they experience with him all of the time. Those are His own. And so the atonement that Jesus did, when Jesus gives his life for you on the cross, he takes your sin, and what he offers to you is his perfect righteousness. So the life of Jesus in perfection, and then the death of Jesus to pay for your sin. We call that the atonement, and it goes all the way back to the picture of the lamb in the Old Testament to a sacrifice of a pure and spotless lamb, where we shed the blood. And when we shed the blood of the lamb, that atones, that makes it right for your sins. Let's get this down for this I know number two. Jesus loved me to give his life for mine. Jesus loved me to give his life for mine, and we're going to call that the atonement. In a way, you can think about the atonement is even in the word there, it says at one. Jesus made me one with God, one in relationship with him through his atonement, through this work that he did in the hour and the time when he died for me and he rose again, okay? So that's what Jesus is doing um, on the cross. Now go to John chapter 10, verse 14, and you'll see where he talks about his own people. John chapter 10, verse 14. And when you've heard about the the word atonement, if you've had theological conversations, if you've studied theology much, you're going to know that sometimes there's some words that we put in front of atonement. Okay? One of these things that has a bad reputation that sometimes we talk about is limited atonement. Anybody ever heard of limited atonement before? Right? It's not really the best way to say it in my humble opinion because there's nothing about the atonement that is limited. The offer is available to all people. But what it is saying is that when Jesus died on the cross, there was a particular group of people that he had in mind when he was dying. There were his own people that he knew his blood was not just going to be offered to for righteousness, but that his blood was actually going to cleanse them from their sins and give them righteousness. And so when we talk about the substitutionary, that's another word we put in front of atonement. When we talk about Jesus giving his life in our place, he is thinking of you personally when he's up there dying on the cross. He has specific people, his own people, that he knows and, and people that will know him and he is personally dying for them on the cross it's not just an offer for everybody no he's got you in mind when he's pay- when he's given his last breath when he's paying for sin he's paying for your sin specifically look at how he says it here how personal it is in John chapter 10 verse 11 he uses the analogy he says i am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life, and who does he lay down his life for specifically? Who does it say? For the who? Okay. So we got a specific group of people in mind, a particular, unique, the love of Jesus is offered to all, but it's experienced by his sheep, his people, Okay. We, we are not universalists here at Compass Bible Church. Do you know what it means to be a universalist? It means that because Jesus died, because he was pure and he sacrificed his pure blood, you believe that therefore everyone is saved. Do you believe that everyone is saved? Do you believe that everyone is, that everyone is going to heaven? See, we don't believe that. That's not what the Bible clearly teaches. The Bible says that there are people who are saved and then there are people who are not saved. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was specifically dying for the people that are going to be saved. He knew them, he loved them, and he was paying for them. It's personal. Jesus was up there dying for you. That's what we're saying. Thinking of you by name as he's dying on the cross. Look at how he says it here in verse 14. He continues the good shepherd analogy, and he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. Already, here, he knows his own, and my own know me. And this is amazing. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for who? Specifically, my sheep, the ones that I know. This is amazing. Jesus is saying, before eternity, I had a perfect relationship with the Father. We knew each other in the most intimate way possible, having the most sincere and enjoyable fellowship that, that you can have. Hey, you and I, we're going to have that same fellowship. The fellowship that I had with the Father, the perfect fellowship eternity past, you and I, we're going to have that same fellowship. In fact, I'm going to take you to the Father, and we're all going to enjoy that fellowship together. So he's coming into time to die for you because he wants you to be one of his people, and he wants to bring you into that relationship that he has with God for all of eternity future. That's how intentional his love is. Having loved his own, John says. No, he's got specific people in mind, and I'm one of them. John is proud to announce he would be wearing the Jesus Loves Me t-shirt. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Let me tell you something about me. In fact, the most important thing about me, when Jesus died on that cross, he did it for me. He didn't just do it for everybody. No, he did it intentionally for my sake. Do you know that Jesus did that for you? Do you believe in that that level of atonement? In fact, go to Romans chapter 5. Maybe this is the most famous passage or one of them about how Jesus loves me. This I know. Romans chapter 5 verse 6. Hopefully this is a passage you've read before, you're familiar with about the love of Jesus Christ. And when we talk about doctrines like limited atonement, or uh, a lot of people can trip out on these kind of doctrines because they start to ask questions, logical questions, that start to get them into trouble. Well, if Jesus is dying for some, why didn't he just die at all? And we start to take it in a way that God didn't really intend. No, the reason that he's saying he loved his own is for you to consider, why did he love me? I mean, first of all, I don't really understand why the creator would enter into and become one of his creation. But then, when he dies for his creation specifically, why did Jesus die for me? What is the reason that would compel Jesus Christ to pay for my sin and to give me his righteousness? I mean, all I brought to the table was the sin. In fact, look at how it describes you here in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. It says, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So let's, let's write down a little self description here according to Romans chapter 5, verse 6. First way we need to think about ourselves here is weak. Doesn't that, isn't this flattering? Doesn't this just boost your self esteem here this morning? Hey, one thing I want you guys to know here at Compass HP you are so weak, man, right? Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me what little ones to him belong. They are, that's us. We're the weak ones. In fact, then it goes on to say we're ungodly. That's the second thing you could write down about yourself. You're weak and you're ungodly. Here's Jesus, perfect holiness, pure splendor with the Father. See, that's not really where you belong. That's not really how you roll. No, you're over here. You're in a fallen world. You're involved in sin. You're ungodly. You're not like God. Now, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Maybe we would die for somebody who was righteous. Maybe for a good person, one would dare even to die. Maybe for the president, the secret service would die. Maybe for some famous person, a celebrity, an important person, we would have bodyguards who are, who are ready to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we got weak, we got ungodly, and then we got sinners. That's how we were. So what exactly makes you attractive to Jesus Christ? Why exactly does Jesus choose to love you and to pay for your weak, ungodly sins on that cross? You have to come to the conclusion that there's absolutely no reason in and of yourself why Jesus chose to love you. Jesus chose to love you because that's who he is. It has nothing to do with you. I mean, it's all based on his love. You didn't do something to earn it. There's no work that you could do that would impress Jesus Christ to die for you. I hope we all, if we were to look ourselves in the mirror, we should think long and hard, why does Jesus love me? There is no logical reason that I can come up with why he would choose to love a sinner like Bobby Blake. But that's what he chose to do. And that's what demonstrates that it's all of his love. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. That's what made us righteous was his death. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So there's another great word for us to write down about ourselves. Weak, ungodly sinners. Here's another one. Enemies, okay, against God in our sin. But while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son that he gave his life for us much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Jesus brings us one with God. Why? Why did he enter into the world? And why, when he did enter in the world and he died to save people, why did he choose me to be one of his sheep that he would die for, one of his own? It makes no sense. You think the love of Jesus is old news? We will never get to the end of the love of Jesus. It surpasses knowledge. It's beyond comprehension. That's why we have sung historically in the church, and can it be question mark? Still not making sense after all these years. Why would my God die for me? I don't get it. But that's what he did. And the reason must be because of his amazing, overwhelming love that he has for me. And I just get to be one of those that he loves He loves his own who were in the world. Go back to John 13, verse 1, because there's a last phrase. And it says that as he loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the, what's the word there? He loved them to the end. And you could write down telos, T-E-L-O-S. That's how we would write out in English the Greek words that's there. And it's a great Greek word. It's a Greek word worth knowing, telos. And it's often translated the end, but it doesn't just mean like the end of the time or the end of the hour. It has kind of a a meaning beyond that in that it means the fullness, the completion, like he loved them to, to the uttermost, to the fulfillment of all of his love for them. So here he is in eternity past, perfect relationship with God, and yet he humbles himself to be born as a man, lives the perfect life that you didn't live, dies for the sin that you did. And and the reason that he did this is he did it to the end. Perfectly completing what he was there to do. And John, in the first verse here, he wants you to say, hey, one night I was just leaning back on Jesus. And it was the Passover, and I just thought it was another dinner like any other Passover. And that is the night that it all spiraled out of control because I asked him, who's going to betray you? And then Judas left, and we didn't really understand what was going on. But after dinner, Jesus was having a hard time praying in this Garden of Gethsemane. And he was really sorrow, and he kept rebuking us because we couldn't even pray for an hour. And then all of a sudden, this crowd showed up. And they had clubs, and they had torches, and there's Judas leading this whole crowd. And he kisses Jesus, and all of a sudden, they come around him, and they arrest him, and all the disciples scattered. And one night, I was just leaning back on Jesus, and then everything unraveled. And I want to tell you, before I tell you anything, it was all love. To the end, it was love. They took him to the religious leaders, and they started falsely accusing him. There was nothing that they could blame him for. So they made things up. And they accused him of blasphemy because he claimed to be God. And how could he be God? And so they said he must die. And they took him from one trial to the next. And they took him to Herod. And they took him to Pilate. And all the time, it's just a lie. And it's just crooked and evil. And then eventually, he gets handed over to the soldiers who start working his punishment. And these soldiers, these Roman soldiers, go up to him. And they punch him as hard as they can in the face. And then they say, prophesy who hit you. Because he couldn't see him. And they start to mock him as the king of the Jews. And they get a crown for this king. And they make it a crown out of thorns. And they beat it into his skull. So the thorns are going into his head. And blood is starting to come out of his skull. And then they whip him. They strip him down naked and they start whipping him. And then they put a purple robe, like a kingly robe, they put it on his ripped open flesh of his back. And they put this robe on him and then they take the robe back off of him. And they're mocking him all the time. Hail, King of the Jews. By the time he's even having to carry his cross up the hill, he's so beaten down, he's so tortured and suffering already, he can't even carry his own cross to where, and then that's where they're going to execute him. And you've probably heard how crucifixion works, where they have this cross and they nail you to it. They nail your hands, they nail your feet, and, and you're hanging there by the nails, Okay? Your, your whipped up, ripped open flesh on your back is rubbing up against this wood because you have to lift yourself up by the nails in your hands and by the nails in your feet. You have to lift yourself up to get a breath. What pain, what agony. It was more torture than execution. And then there's people gathered around. And you know what the people are doing while they watch Jesus die in this most violent way? They're mocking him. They're scorning him. They're like having a a party. They're thinking they've won. The creation is thinking that they have defeated the creator. And they're saying things like, he saved others. Too bad he couldn't save himself. What irony. As he's saving the world, they're mocking him because he can't save himself. And John's standing there at the foot of the cross And he's saying, I saw it all. He never once answered them. He could have easily just blown them away. He could have easily gotten down. He could have done whatever he wanted to do, but he took it to the end. And he did it because of love, John tells you. Because he loved you to the end. I mean, think of some of your sins that you have done in your life. Think of some of the sins that you would not want me to announce publicly that you have participated in here at church. I mean, God is a righteous God. Those sins have to be judged. Somebody has to pay for your sin. What would that be like to pay for sin? The Bible describes it as endless suffering in a place called hell, where where sinners are are going to have to be judged according to what they have done. I know that I deserve to go to a place called hell and to suffer for my sin. That's what I deserve. And Jesus got upon a cross and he took the suffering that I would have experienced as everlasting conscious torment in hell, and he took that for me on the cross. Just start thinking about your sins and start thinking, what would be the penalty for a sin like that? And Jesus paid for that sin. See, the physical agony was brutal with Jesus on the cross, but that wasn't the worst part of it. Not even close. The worst part of it is God, the Father, judging Jesus for your sin. Every single one of them that you have ever done, said, or thought. Just try to even get a little glimpse into how staggering an amount of sin that is that I or you have done. Just think about Jesus dying for your sin alone. And then consider the sin of all of us just even here in this room. And then consider the sin of all of his people throughout all of history on this planet. And this perfect relationship that he had with the Father for all of eternity past. There's a moment on the cross where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father turns away from the Son. Their perfect fellowship is is broken apart as he pours out the wrath that he has for your sin on Jesus Christ. What must it have been like to experience the wrath of God for our sins, for all of our sins at one moment on the cross. That's what Jesus endured for you because he loved you to the end, to the perfection, to the completion of his love. And what that means is he endured the wrath of God for your sin till there was no more wrath, till he had paid it in full. And he said, it is finished, and he died. What did he refer to? Paying for your sin, the suffering of God's wrath. That's what Jesus endured. This I know number three is Jesus loved me to suffer judgment divine, and we call that propitiation, okay? That's the the propitiation. If you want to write something down next to that, that's the satisfaction of God's wrath to the end you could read that more about that in first john 2 2 or romans chapter 3 See, Jesus didn't just come down from heaven to earth out of love for you. He didn't just give his life on the cross out of love for you. No, he paid for every sin that you have ever done. He paid it in full. He paid it to the end. He satisfied all of God's wrath so that all the things that I deserve to be judged for, I now can stand here before you today, and I can tell you I will never be judged for any of my sins. Because Jesus already paid for them. Jesus paid it to thee. End. I mean, think about this. Sins that we haven't done yet, paid for by Jesus on the cross. It's amazing when you start to think about it. See, this night that John's going to start describing for us, this last night of Jesus on planet earth before he dies. It's a tale of two cups. There's there's two cups, and everybody here is going to drink from one of the two cups. Go to Matthew 26, go to one of the other tellings of the Last Supper because after this supper is done, and he tells all his disciples about how he wants them to live because of his love for them, and we're going to be diving into that more next week, but after it's all done, they go to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. You can see it here in Matthew 26, verse 36. After they have this Passover feast, they go out, and in between the city of Jerusalem and this big Mount of Olives, there's this little valley there, and in this valley, there's a garden, and if we're going to Israel next summer, some of us are going to go there, on a trip, and if you want to go, I'd love to go with you, and one of my favorite places, my favorite place, I think I can say, in Israel is this little garden called the Garden of Gethsemane that they went to after the Last Supper, and it's this place. When you go there today, there's all these olive trees all over the place, and these olive trees, if you've seen what those trees look like, they just look ancient. They look old, and it's a place maybe more than any other place in Israel that makes me think like, whoa, Jesus was here. And these trees, I, you know, I, I'm a tourist in Israel, my first time there, and I see somebody who works there at the Garden of Gethsemane, and I'm like, these trees look so old to me. Could these trees have been here at, at the time that, that Jesus died? I mean, could Jesus have been touching the same tree, right? That's how old they look to me. Like, are these 2,000-year-olds? I'm expecting this person to say to me, that's a dumb question, you tourist, you know what I mean? Cause, but they say, no, maybe I mean, these olive trees live for thousands of years, but the Romans burned the city in AD 70, so it's probably not these trees, but you have the feeling of like, wow, Jesus was here walking among these olive trees, praying on the night before he died. And look what he prays in Matthew 26, verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, "Hey, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him, now he just takes three of them, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. That's James and his brother, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, who's writing the gospel we're studying. He took just three of them with him. And Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul, here's Jesus feeling the burden. He knows the hour has come. He knows the time is now. And he knows that he is going to love his people to the end. And that means he must bear the wrath of God for our sin. And he is feeling very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further. He falls on his face to the ground and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here's Jesus, God, the creator who became man, who lived a perfect life, who has done nothing wrong, and he's now looking at drinking the cup of God's wrath for our sin, and he's trembling at the idea of what it's going to be like to experience the wrath of God. He's sorrowful about it. He's troubled about it. He's lying on the ground saying, Father, if there's another way, let me not experience, let me not drink of the cup of your wrath for sin, but because he knows it is the way, not as I will, but as you will. So our Lord and Savior, our Maker. He was overwhelmed with the idea of experiencing the wrath of God. And he did drink from that cup. And he drank that wrath, that judgment for your sin, all the way down till the very end. Now, if you don't know the love of Jesus, if you are not a believer in Jesus, if you are not one of his people, one of his disciples, if you don't have that relationship with him that we are describing, I'm here to tell you this morning that that cup, Of wrath is still out there waiting to be drunk in your life. And I do not know why anybody here would want to experience that outside of the space and time that we're living in. And I would encourage you today, if you know that you don't know the love of Jesus, to believe in him and to trust in him and to look at him on the cross, dying for you, paying it for you, and to give your life to Jesus Christ here this morning because I don't want anybody here to drink of the cup of the wrath of God that Jesus doesn't want to drink from. I mean, he's there in the garden with the olive trees all around him. He's lying down, praying to God, sorrowful and troubled. About what? The physical pain? No, about the cup. There's a cup that haunts him. The cup of the wrath of God. And it's like, it's such a beautiful picture when you go to the Garden of Gethsemane because you think about olive trees and you think about what we do with olives, how we press them and how we squeeze them and we turn them into olive oil and you can see your Savior there in the garden being pressed and squeezed as he considers bearing the guilt of your sin and how he's going to be judged for you and he's sweating like big drops of blood falling from his head. It says he's sweating as he's getting pressed considering how he's going to love You to the end, and even though He knows what's coming, He goes through it for you. And there's another cup you can drink from because Jesus already drank from the cup of God's wrath, and that's this, this cup that was introduced back a few verses. Look at verse 26. At the Last Supper, we have the institution of the Lord's Supper, we refer to it as communion. And it says, As they were eating this Passover feast, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this this bread represents my body. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. He passed the cup to all of them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this cup, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins hey, there's a different cup that you can drink. You don't have to drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty God. No, you can drink the cup of the blood of Jesus Christ. And you can trust that his blood cleanses you from all of your sin. It washes you as white as snow that he paid for all of your punishment that you deserve to the very end. And some of us, we've taken up that cup. And we have believed in Jesus Christ and we have been forgiven and we know that we are the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so we do something that we're going to do here today. We take this little cup of communion and we drink this and we remember that Jesus loves me when we drink this cup. He gave his life for me. He gave his pure blood for me that paid for my sin. Which cup are you going to drink from? Like, are you a a Christian? Do you know that Jesus loves you? you? When we drink of this cup, is it meaningful for you to consider Jesus loving you to the end? Or do you kind of secretly know in your heart here today that there's a cup of wrath that might still be coming for you? So everyone who knows you're loved by Jesus, I want to encourage you. We're going to participate in communion, and the ushers are going to start coming forward, and they're going to pass that to everyone. And this is for those who are disciples, those who know, who can say with confidence here this morning, Jesus does love me, and I know he did come down and die for my sin and pay for it in full. And I don't live in that sin. I've turned from that. And I have a relationship. I have a, uh, I'm known by Jesus, and I know Jesus. I've entered into the relationship of eternal life, and if you don't know that relationship, I would encourage you not to take the symbol and drink of the cup, but I would encourage you to spend some time praying right now. While Ryan sings and the ushers pass the elements, we're going to take the cup and the bread all together at the end, but while you're hearing this song, I would encourage you, if you know that you don't know the love of Jesus, please, please. Call out to him today, confess your sins to him and beg him to forgive you by his blood, the blood of the covenant that you can drink for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that Jesus loved us, that he loved us as his own and he loved us to the end. And God, I pray that this wouldn't be a cliche for us, that no one would be like, oh, here we go about the love of Jesus again. God, forgive us for thinking this is a children's song. God, help us to see this is the most profound reality. In fact, our entire, and our entire identity is wrapped up that we are the disciple whom Jesus loved. The thing that defines my life is the love of Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that as we remember his death, as we take this cup and as we eat this bread, that you will stir up by way of reminder the love of Jesus for us and it will cause us to love him in return. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank <laughs> you.